Well, if you take your Bibles and turn along with me to 1 Peter chapter 4. First Peter chapter 4. I love what our elder Brian Lee said earlier in the service that we as a church strive to be a gospel-centered church, to center all we do and say around the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. This good news is to be the central theme and focus of the local church. The gospel is, after all, what gave birth to the church. It's what makes possible the church. Without the gospel, there is no church. It is the gospel that each member of the local church professes faith in. It is the gospel that unites us together from all of our diverse backgrounds and all of our diverse perspectives. It is the gospel that unites us together. It is the gospel that is at the heart of our mission as a church. The gospel, therefore, must remain central to the life and mission of the local church. But what will a gospel-centered church look like? Are there distinctives that will mark it out and help us to identify it? Are there perspectives and practices that will characterize a gospel-centered church? Peter answers this question in our text this morning with a resounding yes. So let me read for us from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. As we long to be a gospel-centered church and reflect these distinctive marks. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter writes, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit, For the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to glorify you in our hearts and we want to glorify you in our midst. As a community of believers called together for the purpose of bringing glory to your name, Father, 
through the praise and exaltation of your Son, Jesus Christ. Keeping the gospel at the center of our church means keeping Jesus at the center of our church. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your gift to us of yourself, of your life. Giving yourself fully. You loved us to the end. You loved us to the full. Making yourself obedient even unto death, even death on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And because of your death and resurrection and ascension and the sending of your spirit to indwell us, you have united us not only with you but with one another. We are the family of God. The local church is the visible expression of the family of God. And we're family here. We are brothers and sisters in your household. Thank you for the wondrous mystery of the gospel and the mystery of our union with you and our union with one another. Help us to give full expression to that. Help us to understand what the church is here for, what we're supposed to look like as a local expression of your family. Lord, help us to honor you as we interact, as we love one another, as we forgive one another, as we serve one another. Grow us in that, Lord, always with the gospel at the center. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we began looking at this passage last week and these six distinctive marks of a gospel-centered church. And we covered the first three of six. And I just want to take a few minutes before we pick up where we left off last week to bring you back up to speed on these six distinctive marks of a gospel-centered church. Let me summarize the first three again, okay? All from this passage, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11. First of all, a gospel-centered church possesses a last day's perspective. It possesses a last day's perspective. Peter says in verse 7 that the end of all things is near. That means that Jesus could return at any moment. That's what we believe. That's what we're about. That's in part what motivates us. Jesus could return at any moment. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that Jesus could come back tomorrow? Or today? Or before I'm done? It could. He could come back at any moment. This means that we ought to live our lives with a sense of expectation for the coming of the Lord, a sense of longing for the return of Jesus. And this last day's perspective will change the way we think. It'll change the way we make decisions. It'll change the way we view our time, our lives, our resources. The end of all things is near. So let's live like it. 
Churches that keep the gospel at the center will keep the truth of the Lord's return at the center as well. For the truth of the nearness of the Lord's return is part of the gospel as well. We sometimes forget that. But the truth of the gospel is the whole story of Jesus. Yes, his birth. Yes, his sinless life. Yes, his sacrificial death as a substitute for sinners. Yes, his burial. Yes, his victorious resurrection. But also his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his promise to return one day in power and glory. It's all a total package and it's all the gospel. It's all the good news. And so we as a church need to live with a last day's perspective, realizing that the end of all things is near. It's nearer now than it ever has been before, right? Is that true? Of course it is. So let's live like it. Keeping the gospel at the center means we we live with a last day's perspective. Secondly, a gospel-centered church promotes sound thinking and sober living. Sound thinking and sober living. Again, verse 7, the end of all things is near, Peter says. Therefore... Since that's true, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Since the end of all things is near, and it is, Peter says we ought to be of sound judgment and sober spirit. And as we saw last week, that means that we ought to be clear-headed, practicing sound thinking. This is no time for Christians to be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. Or to be taken captive by worldly philosophies. Or to be carried along by various superstitions and speculations and conspiracy theories. In these last days, with the end of all things so near, we are to be a people of the truth. God's truth. People who love the truth treasure truth, who proclaim truth, who build our lives on the truth of God's word. And the church is to be the pillar and support of the truth and central to the truth of God's word is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So if we're going to center on the truth, we've got to center on the gospel. So we're to be a people who exercise sound judgment People whose thinking is not conformed to the world, but is transformed by the renewing of our minds. But we're also to be a people of sober spirit. That means we're to live with care and self-control. This means we are to live in such a way that reflects the good news we believe and reflects the knowledge that we believe we're living in the last days, that the end of all things is near. We're living for eternity. To live soberly is the opposite of living morally careless lives, morally reckless lives. It is to live a life of Self-control, it's to keep our wits about us and not let ourselves be swept up 
into immorality. The Lord is near, and since that's true, we're to be a people of clear thinking and clean living. We're to be a people of sound judgment and sanctified lifestyle. Jesus is coming back, and that should change the way we think and change the way we live. That's the gist. Thirdly, a gospel-centered church persists in love for one another. We saw this last week as well. In verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. This is our priority calling as Christians, to love one another. And as we saw last week, that doesn't mean just loving those who are like us, loving those who think like us. That's, that's the easy kind of love, right? That's simple love. Biblical love calls us to love those who are different than us, who think differently than we do. To reach across and love in spite of our differences. To willingly put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. That's what biblical love is. To sacrifice ourselves for the good of another. That's what we're called to. This is what we're to do above all else. As important as right theology is, as important as a belief in some of these major capstones of the word, you know, the sovereignty of God and salvation. We could name all kinds of doctrinal pieces that are super important to us and will remain so. Yet love is to be above all else. Paul said, if I could speak with the tongues of men and angels, but I don't have love, I'm just a a clanging gong, a tinkling cymbal. It's just noise. Love is to be above all. And a gospel-centered church will persist in love for one another. Persistence, meaning even when we disagree on some of those important foundational doctrinal issues. This is to be the defining characteristic of the church. And one of the tests of whether or not we're loving one another as we are called to do is whether or not we are practicing forgiveness of one another. Above all, Peter says, keep fervent, persist in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We're to be a gracious and magnanimous gathering of people. Not a people that's keeping score, that's looking for faults, that's constantly about confronting one another. No, a people of love, a people of patience and kindness, a people who are ready to forgive. And even when someone doesn't ask us to forgive them, we we extend that to them. We let love cover a multitude of sins. That's the kind of gathering we're supposed to be. That's the kind of gathering we will be if we keep the gospel at the center. 
this kind of a loving, forgiving, gracious community will be a stark contrast to anything the world has to offer with its canceled culture. And it should be a breath of fresh air to us all. No one wants to be part of a community that's, that's oppressive and heavy-handed. But rather one that extends forgiveness at the drop of a hat. It's in the church that we're, we are to feel love and acceptance and support and encouragement. And yes, sometimes love means confrontation that's loving too but ultimately a a congregation a, a gathering of people where forgiveness is the watchword the heart of the gospel is God's love for us and his forgiveness of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ and the result of God's love for us and of his forgiving us our sins through His Son Jesus, should be our love for one another and our eagerness to forgive others who've wronged us in far less weighty ways than we have wronged God. We who have been forgiven much are to in turn forgive much. So that brings us up to speed with where we left it off last week. So I want to pick it up at verse 9. And the fourth distinguishing mark of a gospel-centered church. Now some of you are thinking, why couldn't you have preached last week's message that fast? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I had more to say. All right. Fourthly, a gospel-centered church practices hospitality. A gospel-centered church practices hospitality. And this is born out of love, right? This is, this, is a, this is part of that above all. Keep fervent in your love for one another. Gospel-centered church practices hospitality. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. I like that without complaint part. (laughs) It's almost as though Peter, it's Father's Day, right? Peter's acting as a dad, right? (laughs) He's, He's anticipating, right? Our childlike response. Be hospitable. Aw, do we have to? Yes, and do it without complaining. In fact, we're to do all things without complaining, right? Or grumbling. We're not to be a complaining people. That's a, that's a heart struggle I have. The cynic in me wants to complain about everything. Pick apart everything. Grumble about everything. Have a poor me pity party. You know? Well, that's, not, that's, that's not with a view toward the gospel and, and of, of the nearness of, of the end of all things. God is accomplishing his purposes. Even in those things that don't seem to go my way. I shouldn't grumble and complain. I should trust the Lord. Seek to understand what he's doing in my life. Seek to 
be joyous despite the sufferings and difficulties I might be experiencing? Well, anyway, we're supposed to be hospitable and we're supposed to do it without complaining. Love for one another necessarily involves hospitality. The word hospitality literally means love of strangers. And biblical hospitality certainly includes loving strangers. People we don't know, maybe we just met and there's some way we can help them or be kind to them. We're called to do that. We're we're to do good to all people. For sure. Hebrews 13.2. Listen to this. Blows your mind. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Say what? I'm, I'm sorry. Did you say some have entertained angels without knowing it? That's what it says. Hospitality to strangers. But in this context, Peter has in mind not hospitality to strangers so much, but rather hospitality that is shown within the church family. Notice he says we are to be hospitable to one another. Not strangers, but to one another. This is one of the great one another's of the scriptures. This is the hospitality of hosting fellow believers, of serving fellow believers in love in your home, ultimately. It's the hospitality of hosting brothers and sisters in your home for a meal, for a meeting, for a gathering, for fellowship. I believe it can, in principle, even be extended in application to the hospitality of making people feel welcome and comfortable here at church. Why do we serve coffee at church? Because we're all addicted? No, because just the smell for some of you. I'm not a coffee drinker particularly. My jam is a London fog. So, you know, I can give you my man card after the service if you'd like. (laughs) That's fine. Why do we serve coffee? Because most people like it. Because it makes them feel at home. There's something comforting about it. And that's what we want. We want want people to feel welcome here. So intentionally, we don't just do it because everybody else is doing it. We don't just do it because it's cool. I see some of you sipping. (laughs) I've I've inspired you to take another sip. We do it because we want to serve others. We want to be loving. We want this to be a welcome place where people enjoy casual fellowship together and grow in relationship. And coffee helps that. That's just one little thing, right? But it's intentional. Same with our welcome center and our gift bags for new people and visitor spots. And you're driving around, right, every week. And you're like, why do we have so many visitor spots? I could use that. 
Well, because we want new people to feel welcome, that there's a place here for them, that there's room here for them. Even if there's not room for you. <laughs> what, what is the point of all? It's hospitality. It's thinking about others, looking through this circumstance of coming to church through the eyes of a new person and remembering what it was like to be new and you walked in and met Pepe. (laughs) We want people to feel welcome here, to feel at home. And it's this hospitality within the church family that Peter primarily has in mind here. Not so much a love of strangers, though that's important as well. You see, much of the life of the early church, the church of the first century here in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, was lived out in the homes of believers, right? They didn't have dedicated buildings as yet where they could gather. Churches often met for worship in the homes of believers. Believers would gather together at other times as well for fellowship or prayer in each other's homes. And Peter is saying here that along with loving one another and forgiving one another, we also ought to be hospitable toward one another. That that too is an expression of loving one another. Hospitality was and is so important that it is one of the qualifications for leadership within the church. You can't be a leader and not be hospitable. You can't be a leader and not share what God has given you and open your home to others. Hospitality is the practice of loving another person and putting them first in the context of your own personal and private space. We're a garage door culture, right? You drive up your driveway, you go into your garage. Before you get out of your car, you shut the garage door, you know, gate closed. The world is shut out. Just me, a man and his castle. That's, that's not really the biblical picture of what our homes are and what they're for. Biblical hospitality is to intentionally open up your home and your life to others with the goal of serving them and encouraging them. The goal of hospitality is not to impress, but to serve. That's important in our culture as well, our Pinterest culture, right? The goal of hospitality is not to impress, but to serve. If God's given you a home, he gives it to you in part to share it with others. In order to host ministry, in order to provide a welcoming space for relationships to grow, for ministry to be done, for relationships to be established and strengthened, In the context of the first century in Asia Minor, this call to hospitality was absolutely vital. 
There were no church buildings like we know them today. Instead, local gatherings of believers would meet in the homes of their fellow church members, often in the homes of the wealthier church members, whose homes might be a bit larger and able to accommodate a a larger group. But it no doubt was also a call to all the members of the local church to open their homes to their fellow believers and be ready to share what God has given them with others. Now to be sure, hospitality can be costly. People sometimes come too early, before you're ready. And sometimes they stay too late. Sometimes they spill drinks on your carpet. Or their kids scratch your table with their little toy car. I mean that heirloom, your, your great-grandmother's table, for Pete's sake. Sometimes when you give an open invitation to others, people that you struggle to love will actually show up. And in the first century, there was the added cost of being labeled by unbelievers as someone who hosted this new religion in their house. And so it could make you an even bigger target of persecution. You could be identified as a leader of this group, even though you just opened your house and let them meet. And it's because of the cost of hospitality that Peter says we're to practice hospitality toward one another without complaining. You see, if hospitality was always rewarding and never an imposition, Peter would never have had to say, do this without complaining. The fact is, it is an imposition. There is a cost. People do stay too late. Their kids do mark up your table. It's going to happen. They will spill a terrible drink on your new carpet. Count on it. Mark it out. We're all prone to complaining. Some of us have made it A hobby. Oh, no, not her again. Why don't they corral their kids better when they're at our house? Why do they stay so late? Don't they know I have to go to work in the morning? Who's going to pay to have my carpet cleaned? Well, they could have at least offered to help clean up. No, instead, we're to have a spirit of love and of self-giving that welcomes people into our life and into our home despite the cost. We're to open our homes and our lives to others, knowing the potential cost involved and yet doing it anyway and doing it without complaining. Peter is calling us to open-handedness with our possessions, with our homes, with our very lives. To release our grip on our private time and on our private spaces. To let down the drawbridge of your castle and let others in. 
So ask yourself, how, how can I use my home and the resources God has entrusted to me effectively by loving and serving others? It might be through hosting a life group. It may be by inviting people over from your Sunday school class for dessert or dinner or just to hang out on the deck. It may be hosting a a small group of young moms and kids for a play date. I don't know. The, the opportunities and the options are endless. But the calling is clear. May God help us view our homes and our resources and our lives less like a fortress that we guard and protect and more like a fellowship hall that welcomes gathering. Y'all come. Less like a castle, more like a community center that we open and share. A gospel-centered church practices hospitality. Fifthly, a gospel-centered church participates in acts of service. The next distinctive mark is found in verses 10 through 11, the first part of verse 11. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. Peter explains here that each and every Christian has received a special gift from God, a divine gift, a spirit-empowered enablement. Each Christian With the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the Christian has been given a spiritual gift, a grace gift, a special divine enabling given for the purpose of serving and building up the body of Christ. And by body of Christ, I don't mean some universal, unidentifiable mass group of Christians. I'm talking about the local body of Christ, the local expression, the family of God. If you're a Christian, you have a spiritual gift and God intends for you to use this gift here in the local church for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is why Peter says each one has received a special gift and they are to employ it in serving one another. You see, the gifts that we've been given are not for ourselves, are not for a sense of self-fulfillment. It's totally for the benefit of others. It's totally for giving out grace. God uses us. Isn't that amazing? God uses us to build his church. He builds it. Right? But he always uses means. And we're the means. God uses us in all of our diversity of gifts 
for the proper functioning of the body, each part playing its role. Spiritual gifts are never intended to be self-serving. They are intended for others. We, we operate and, and serve in our area of giftedness with a heart of humility and service to others, simply giving out what has been given to us, right? And since God has given each of us a spiritual gift, we're to employ it in service to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So using your spiritual gift, employing it within the body, serving others... It's part of what it means to be a good steward of what God has entrusted to you. Jesus illustrated the principle of good stewardship well when he shared the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, 14 through 30. You can look that up later if you don't remember that story. But God expects us to use what he's entrusted to us for kingdom return, for kingdom investment. For kingdom benefit. He doesn't want us to bury it. To keep it for ourselves. To protect ourselves. No. He wants us to give. To be open. To share. To use and employ what he has entrusted to us for his sake. God has given us life and breath and all things. And he's given us salvation and his spirit and the church and one another. All of these represent a part of the manifold grace of God. Like what in your life is not a part of the grace of God? I dare you to make a list. You'll be staring at a blank sheet of paper if you do it right. Everything we have... Everything in life is a part of the manifold grace of God. It's manifold. That's why it's manifold. Grace upon grace, right? And part of being a good steward of the manifold grace of God is being intentional about employing our spiritual gift in the church to serve others. Now, what are those gifts? We've talked about that at other times. And if you have the church app, I put some bonus material in there again. All right? So... If you get some time, scroll down to the bottom of the sermon notes on the church app and you'll see a listing of the gifts and the various passages that talk about the gifts. If you don't know what your gift is, I'd be happy to talk with you or Pastor Rob, Pastor John, or any of the elders would be happy to sit down with you and explain what gifts are and how you might use yours in the church. We do that all the time. We love to have those conversations with folks. Peter doesn't go into a long listing of the gifts. He simply divides these gifts into two broad categories, verse 11. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Now that's not to say that speaking gifts aren't serving gifts or that serving gifts never involve speaking. But generally they can be divided into speaking gifts and serving gifts. Speaking gifts, the one who employs a speaking gift is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Those who teach God's word and those who counsel using God's word are to do so in a way that is faithful to God's word. Handling God's word with fear 
and trembling, wanting to get it right. We're to speak understanding that this is God's holy word. We've been entrusted with a message, and our task is not to change that message, try to improve on that message, which we never could, but to simply deliver the message faithfully and effectively. And since it's a message from God, we're to, live, to deliver it with authority. Right? I'm, I'm not reading the phone book here. This isn't some online article from Wikipedia. Right? This is the Word of God. God breathed His message to us, to a lost world, to humanity, to Christians. For their growth and benefit. So teach like it. Counsel like it. Share it with that measure of weight and importance and authority. Paul told Titus in Titus 2.15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Why? Because Titus was so smart? No, because Titus had the word of God and his job as a pastor was to preach it and declare it and to do so with authority. Not his own authority, but authority from God as he faithfully delivered the message. said it before, but the preaching of the word of God is the word of God. When the word of God is rightly preached, God's word is preached. Likewise, Peter says, whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. With any act of service comes weariness, fatigue, and even discouragement at times. But Peter encourages us here to serve with the strength that God provides. Yes, God has called you to serve, to use the gift that he's given you in service to the body. And that will necessarily involve putting yourself out and cost and expense and so forth. But do so knowing that God is providing the strength as you serve, as you give of yourself. God is constantly backfilling you with what you need, the grace you need for the moment. The strength you need to continue to serve and endure. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. God has gifted you. Are you serving in the body? Are you a faithful steward of the manifold grace of God in your life? Say, I don't know how. I don't know what to do. Talk to us. Love to shepherd you through that. Help you think through that. Grow in that. Talk to another believer you respect. A mature believer that can help you and who knows you and has maybe observed some things in your life and can maybe help you discern maybe how it is the Lord has gifted you. But really, the, the most important thing about discovering your spiritual gift is not knowing the lists and all of that and taking a test or anything like that. It's, 
The most important thing you can do to discover your spiritual gift is to love others fervently and serve them. Just get busy busy serving. Look for opportunities to serve. You say, well, I don't know if that's my area of giftedness. Well, you'll find out. (laughs) Just serve. God doesn't say we, you know, some area that is not our area of giftedness is verboten, right? We, we're not allowed to go there, you know? No, if, it, if there's a need, meet it. If you can, serve. Okay, sixth, finally. A gospel-centered church pursues the glory of God. And this is what it's all about. The purpose of using our gifts in service to our church family is, the end of verse 11, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The goal of using our gifts in the church is the glory of God and the praise of Jesus Christ. God is glorified. Christ is exalted. Whenever we put aside selfishness and self-protection and share our home or use our giftedness in service of the body of Christ. In fact, the purpose of all these five points that have preceded this last one is the glory of God, right? The purpose of the last day's perspective that the church is to have is the glory of God. The purpose of sound thinking and sober living is the glory of God. The purpose of loving one another and forgiving one another in love is the glory of God. The purpose of hospitality without complaining is the glory of God. The purpose of employing the gifts God has given us in service to the church family is the glory of God. The purpose of all things is the glory of God. Peter says, so that in all things, in all things, nothing is excluded here. In all things, God may be glorified. That is the great purpose for which God created the world. What is this all about? Where is this all headed? Why are things the way they are? Answer to all questions is the glory of God. Through the exaltation of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the great purpose for all things. It is the great purpose for your life and mine. There is no greater purpose in the world. Mankind cannot conceive of a greater purpose than that to bring glory to the one who created us, glory to the one who sent his son to die for us. This is why we're here. This is what the church is about. This is the point of the gospel, is it not? This is where all things are headed. The glory of God and the exaltation of His Son, Jesus. God's glory through Jesus Christ is the purpose of our having received a spiritual gift. It is the purpose behind our employing of it in service to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And it is the great purpose of all things. There is no greater purpose than the glorification of God through the praise of Jesus Christ. And you and I get to be a part 
of that immense, eternal, divine, glorious purpose. Ultimately, our lives are not about personal achievements, pleasure, career accomplishments, financial security, or even creating close bonds of family kinship, as great as those things are. In and of themselves, they are unworthy goals to spend ourselves pursuing. The only goal in life that matters is the glory of God. And this goal is achieved through faith in Jesus Christ, through loving sacrificial service to the people of Jesus, people Jesus died to redeem, our brothers and sisters in Christ in our church family. That's what we're a part of. These are things angels long to look into. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Lord, who is worthy for these things? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. The glory of your name and the exaltation of your Son is the purpose for which you created the world. It's the purpose for which everything in this world has happened. It is the great goal toward which all of history, the present, and the future are headed. Your glory. God, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ, the name that is above every name, King of kings and Lord of lords, as we keep the gospel at the center of our church, we'll keep that great overarching purpose at the center of our church, your glory. Forgive us for our selfishness, our self-centeredness, our self-worship. Help us to love one another fervently from the heart. Persevering in love, forgiving one another, opening our homes and our hearts and our lives to one another, serving one another, stewarding the gifts you've given us for the benefit of our brothers and sisters here. So grow us, Lord, in love for you, And in love for one another. All for your glory. And the praise and honor and glory of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen.